Hello, I'm your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 28, brought to you by acmescience.com. My guest on today's episode is Professor Rebecca Golden from George Mason University and Director of Research at STATS. We talk about what exactly got her into mathematics, her work with STATS, and I ask her a bunch of very cliched questions, and she gives me back a bunch of wonderfully non-cliched answers. Here we go. On uh, Strongly Connected Components, today I have Rebecca Golden, the Director of Research at STATS, as well as a professor at George Mason University. Hello, Professor. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on, especially after we've had to reschedule this already once. So I'm just happy to finally have you on the phone. Excellent. Now, I want to start out the interview today uh, by going all the way back. And uh, specifically, you, were, uh, you had an interview with Ivers Peterson uh, when you were giving a talk at the MAA Carriage House. And you said that you were interested in, in math from a young age, but you didn't actually consider it math at that time. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit what you meant by that. Yeah, so when I was a kid, my idea of mathematics was adding numbers up, and when you got really good at that, you got to go to two digits. And when you got really, really <laughs> good at that, uh, then you could do three digits, uh, or even four and five. And uh, I think that I had uh, some school teachers who didn't really have a sense of how to challenge a kid for whom adding and subtracting was really straightforward and a little bit boring. Although probably the kids for whom it wasn't straightforward also found that boring. <laughs> so I was really lucky that my father was professor of mathematics and gave me a lot of logic puzzles and and number patterns to think about, things like that. And I thought that was a lot of fun, but I didn't think that was mathematics. If, if you didn't think that, they, that it was mathematics, and I can definitely understand it when I was in elementary school, I wouldn't have thought those were mathematics either. What did you consider them? Just puzzles, just a fun thing to work with? or Yeah, I, I thought they were curious. And I, I think there's also, maybe there was a little competitive part of me because I could solve them before my younger sister could. <laughs> she, she got up pretty soon after that. But I think, I think they were just a, kind of curious and fun and interesting and something to do that was far more interesting than school math. I also got pretty lucky that, that, that my parents were very aggressive about what was going on in the classroom for me for school. So there were several points where I actually didn't have to do the schoolwork in school. And I was able to do these kinds of things for an entire hour a day or 40 minutes a day. And whatever one class period of math was, I remember in fifth grade, I just sat in the back of the classroom with a book on patterns and number patterns. So uh, that, that also maybe, you know, some of my interest was that it was relative to the other possibility, which was doing simple multiplication problems or simple, simple arithmetic. So that was, that was kind of the, the starting point. But it was also a way to 
somehow that was the kind of conversations that we had at home. You know, I think all kids look up to their parents a lot, and that was sometimes the dinner conversation was, I have a little puzzle for you, you want to think about this? Um, And so you could kind of engage in that as a way of interacting with your parents, and I think as a parent now, I find it really hard to, to, to constantly think that way and to try to give my kids something to think about that way. But it, it was certainly for me the kind of thing that got my mind going. And I don't think that it's just for mathematics. It's the kind of thing that can go for you and then you end up a chemist or you end up an accountant or you end up doing so, you know, being a lawyer. It doesn't have to be that you end up in science. But I think that that was my first introduction to the idea that thinking about something logically and deductively was actually fun and could be something worth investing in. So I'm going to jump forward a few years from elementary school to uh, college. So when you got to college, did your plan at all include doing mathematics as your actual degree? Well, not at first. At first, again, I, I, I was fairly convinced I knew what math was. Uh, of course, I had no idea. I had taken a lot of calculus as a high school student, so I thought that uh, mathematics was very much like more advanced differential equations. So in college, I decided that I didn't want to major in math. I wanted to do maybe philosophy, maybe physics, but I would just take one or two math classes for, for the fun of it. So that's how I started out taking some math classes, but I certainly didn't intend to major in it. It was when I got introduced to proof writing, I found that much more challenging than anything I had done before. And I still didn't think I was going to major in mathematics, but I thought it was really curious and interesting. I wanted to learn how to do it better. And it was the first course I took in topology, which really got me excited. And and that was where I, I really felt that mathematics was quite beautiful and that the language of proof allowed you to really think about things in a deeper way, far deeper than I'd ever been asked to think about things before. And I didn't do very well in these classes. <laughs> I worked really hard, and I hadn't really had the preparatory courses in, in proofwriting. So I, for the first time, I had to work really hard, and I saw there were people who were far better at it than I was, and that the material itself, what was actually officially being called mathematics, was beautiful and exciting and neat. So even then, I decided I would major in math, but I, I still didn't think I would go to graduate school or, or make a career out of it. But I think it was after my first year of college, after I had two courses in mathematics at a, at a fairly advanced level, that I thought, ah, oh, this is actually something I'd like to major in. I, I realize that this might be a bit of a left field question, but do you by any chance remember what it was from that topology course that really struck you in the beginning? I remember the definition of a compact set. And I remember thinking that that was really clever and difficult to understand and profound and amazing that it could describe so accurately what we mean by compact. So that was one of the things, but probably there were many others. And in fact, what I would say that probably many of the things that I encountered at that time, I didn't understand them very well. So while they seemed really neat, it would be hard to describe them because they weren't really deeply etched in my understanding at that time. It was just, wow, if only I could, or wow, that's really neat, or I can't believe it works that way, I don't get it really. You know, (laughs) there was a lot of uh, what you don't know, but you have a little window into it that made it exciting. So while I remember 
the compact set, that was probably the one thing that I really got from the course. There were, there were other things that I was introduced to. It. In, in retrospect, a lot of the, my first course in topology actually had a fair amount of algebraic topology in it, which is unusual for a first course, rather than point set topology. And I just, I feel, I remember feeling quite overwhelmed that it was something very big, so much bigger than what I thought math was up until that point. Now, you were studying all of this at Harvard University for your undergraduate, then you went on to get your PhD at MIT. Now, these, are, these are both en- enormously important and big colleges in mathematics, as well as just universities in general. And now I'm going to ask a very cliched question, which I'm sure you get very often, because you do happen to be a female in a very male area of the academy. And what was it like going through Harvard, going through MIT, and being a female mathematics student? Well, you know, some of that question is very difficult to, to answer because some of every individual's experience can be attributed to your sex, and some of it can be attributed to the luck of a situation some of it can be good or bad luck. Some of it can be attributed to the specific circumstance that perhaps has nothing to do with your gender, but then people sometimes interpret one way or another. So I would say that as a female person, when I was an undergraduate, it was a very big issue. It was a time in the Harvard Math Department that I didn't know at the time. In fact, there was a lot of controversy over the fact that there were no female faculty. This was not my particular issue. I wasn't being an active about, activist about this, but I did notice that a lot of undergraduates were dropping out of the program, female undergraduates more than male undergraduates. Males were coming into the program. And I do remember talking to some people in the administration of the department saying that I thought that this was a problem. And I think, if anything, they really wanted to fix the problem. They wanted to make it better for women in the department, but they were very defensive about the idea, which I hadn't brought up, but I think was the background conversation, the idea that they would somehow compromise their standards. And that language of compromising their standards by either hiring female faculty or compromising their standards by by specifically looking or targeting to hire females or even by improving their program for the women who were there, I found that a little bit disingenuous. And uh, I found that very frustrating. At the same time, it wasn't my particular issue to get females onto the faculty. So I wasn't involved in any of that background politics. I did feel that at that time, my specific experience wasn't great as a female, but it wasn't either the focus of it. Uh, that Well, I could probably point to one or two events I felt where a, where a student said something that sounded really sexist or where faculty didn't respond to female students the same way that he responded to male students. I think that those don't describe the whole of the experience because the whole of experience was very intense. And whether this disadvantages, disadvantages women or advantages certain types of people, the Harvard Math Department, the undergraduate experience is a very intense one. It's one that was, at that time at least, fairly competitive, and you could be really good and have no sense that you're really good because 
the environment is so, um, there's, there are people there who are just so amazing that there's always somebody who's better at something than you. <laughs> so um, I think that it, it is a place where you could make it about your gender, but it really isn't in all senses that. Uh, so my overall undergraduate experience, I feel like I learned a tremendous amount from the faculty there, from the other students there, from the environment there. And there were points of frustration, but I wouldn't say that the department was focused on the female versus male issue. And if anything, I because I hadn't decided I wanted to become a mathematician, it wasn't extraordinarily personal for me. I didn't sit there thinking, I can't believe they're not letting me do this or something. And, and I never felt that I wasn't allowed to do something. But I, there, there can be elements of that that are much more subtle, the messages that you're given, that kind of thing. But it's very hard to know whether that's because you're a female or because you're vulnerable to feeling insecure around all these amazing other undergraduates and amazing faculty. And in contrast, at MIT, I just happened to be hooked up with a professor for whom I felt this was absolutely no issue, and he had had many female students, and even in the classes that weren't with my main advisor, I just never felt it the same way. I think MIT that year had made, I don't know if they made an effort to get females or it just worked out well that year, but the year I entered, 20% of the class, the entering class, was female, and that made a huge difference for feeling that you weren't the only person, you weren't singled out, you were among several people who were very good and who were doing mathematics for a career. So that feeling largely went away in graduate school that somehow that there was some sexism. And the interesting thing about that is that not all women at MIT felt this at all. And I talked to many who had terrible experiences. And I think it's that when you become, when you become a graduate student, your specific interactions, the specific faculty who are interacting with you, the courses that you take, all of that can be very individual. And it's not the same for every single person. So it's very hard to say that this would be somehow the uniform experience among all graduate students there. It certainly is not. I've certainly talked to people who did not have such a good experience and really would have attributed it to their sex that they didn't have a good experience. On the other hand, my experience at MIT was far better than that at Harvard in terms of the specific issues around gender. One more question on this sort of subject. Do you feel that, uh, at least in the math area of the academy, that the role of uh, female students, of female professors, is uh, changing in any way? Oh, yeah, I think it is changing quite a lot. First of all, when you talk to undergraduates now, quite universally, I hear that young women don't feel that they've experienced sexism from their teachers, from their other students in their cohort. And I don't know if it's true that they haven't experienced, but the fact that they don't feel that is actually a great sign. And the numbers of students who are graduating are much higher. We've got far more women who are getting their PhDs percentage-wise than it used to be. I think the number is up around 35% now. I could be incorrect about the exact numbers. And a similar number are getting jobs in tenure-track positions, and a similar number now are starting to get tenure. So we see that kind of as the years go by, the walls have broken down to some extent, and those women are going into long-term positions at prestigious universities. I do still see that it's it's very anecdotal. I don't have statistics about this, but I do still see that when there's a two-body problem, 
between a man, a man and a woman who are married, say, and they're trying to solve a situation of finding jobs for both of them, that the man's job tends to be preferred. So sometimes I've seen women leave academia for this reason. And those are very difficult cultural issues. It's hard to say that that would be exactly sexism. On the other hand, there's a kind of social expectation that leads into those kinds of decisions and why it tends to work in one direction rather than another. So I still see that there's progress to be made in making women feel that their careers are as important as their husbands and as their male colleagues and to encouraging young women who are interested in math and science to pursue those careers. But I think that the barriers are far fewer. It's still They still exist. There still, of course, are people who are invested in believing that women aren't as good at, at, as men in mathematics. But I think that's become a, a really minority voice and one that people don't feel they can say so loudly, uh, especially within the math community. There are, outside of the math community, people are very happy to talk about that issue <laughs> still. In the press, you hear op-ed, people writing op-eds still saying that they think women are inferior to men in mathematics based on data that's really erroneous in this regard and measuring this. But I think that that's a very small voice, and and those people are just trying to hold on to something that has meaning for them in some way. But I, luckily, I think that this is not the view of the academy. It's not the view of people who are actually pursuing their PhDs in these topics, either in the topic of gender differences in performance in mathematics and, and all the research surrounding math education or in actually in math, mathematics research, engineering research, computer science research, and other fields where women are underrepresented. Yeah, in the introduction, I mentioned that you are the director of research for a group called STATS. I was wondering if you could just let my listeners know what STATS is and what they do as an organization. Sure. What we do is we talk with journalists about how to write about data and statistics. Sometimes we help journalists actually interpret the statistics or the data that they're looking at or understand a research article that they are reading about a topic that these journalists want to write. Or we also do our own investigative journalism and try to put online articles that we think have a quality interpretation of data and statistics. Our idea is basically that people who are not comfortable with numbers, who are not comfortable with basic statistics, and I don't mean really sophisticated, you know, running complicated statistics software. I mean the kind of statistics that you might learn in a first semester course in statistics. If you're not comfortable with that, you may jump to the wrong kind of conclusions. When you're writing about it for the general public, you can kind of mess up the communication lines between scientists and the public. So part of our goal is to really push forward the notion that people need to understand the math and the statistics behind what they're writing about. And we try to give them the tools to do that, either walking them through it or just showing things online ourselves, and also criticizing media that does a poor job of this and discussing why this is, that this reasoning doesn't work. Your research is not statistically based research. I was really wondering how you became involved and interested in talking about the media's use of data and statistics, seeing as mathematics is a traditionally rather closed off field. Once you decide the sort of area you're going to research in, you don't typically tend to branch out all that much, especially into a completely different area. 
Yes. So I have to admit that it was absolute blind luck that I ended up working with this organization. The part that's not luck is when I decided to stay with the organization. <laughs> so the story started when the dean of the of George Mason University of this College of Arts and Sciences at the time asked me if I would become involved with the organization when it became affiliated with George Mason University. They wanted to have faculty who were directly involved with the research output, who were technically oriented, and whose credibility could serve the organization well. At that point, uh, I looked at what the organization was doing, and it was very clear that it would benefit tremendously from having somebody who knew something about statistics. And as I say, I don't mean doing complicated analyses using statistical software, but really just having the kind of critical thinking that you have when you understand the basics, understanding what is a standard deviation and why are those important, understanding what does it mean to have a p-value. And I felt that this would be really exciting for me to learn about how the media works, how Washington works. In some sense, the organization likes to think that it plays a role in how the conversation is formed about some of these topics, specifically about health topics, because the media is the way in which we get our ideas for what that research is and how we should interpret it for our own, own lives, and at times how we should form policy to try to deal with it. So we felt that, I, I personally felt that it was actually a really exciting opportunity for me, but as I said, it really was luck on some level that the dean was interested. Of course, after that, there was an interview process and there were several candidates, and then I, I went forward to, to become their director, and I stayed on because I really enjoyed what I was doing. I think all my life I felt that being a professor of mathematics is a lot of fun. It's wonderful, but I also wanted to do more for the world. I wanted to not stay only in the ivory tower, only thinking about students and my research. But I wanted to think about the society at large, almost like feeling I could extend my student base to anyone who might read my work or who I might talk to. So I felt I would learn a lot about journalism and about how the world would work, which I certainly think is true. And I think also I've been able to talk with people on a much broader base about the importance of understanding mathematics and specifically understanding basic statistics for how we function in the world, especially now as data becomes more and more important and more available to us and we get more and more information. I think it's easier and easier to live in a world in which we don't know how to make our decisions because there's all this information coming at us and we don't know how to filter it. So for me, that, that was a really exciting possibility to be out there talking to people about how to understand this data from a mathematical point of view for, without the, the morality, the opinions, the kind of opining that we do when we don't have anything to back us up except conviction. So I really felt that that was extremely important both for me and for society. Now, I just have one final question, and this is another one of those probably rather cliched questions, but I'm sure most of the people who listen to me interview mathematicians probably have a few personal, well, favorites of terrible uses of statistics in journalism and news stories. I was just wondering if you could maybe tell me your number one worst use that you've seen, perhaps? That's a difficult question. Well, I, I, I'm not actually surprised you do this as a job. So uh, maybe, maybe, yes. uh, maybe one of them. <laughs> 
So I think I can't really say what I think is the worst use of statistics, but I can give a, a pattern. And in fact, I'll give an example that's not really even statistical. And it's really more about how we reason and how we think about things. Recently, I read an article. It was about how babies were considered obese now more often than they used to be. So a higher percentage of babies are in the top 5% of weight. And that is not 5% now. That's the top 5% of charts that were developed by the Centers for Disease Control in the 1960s. So you get a whole bunch of news articles about this research that was done determining that babies at nine months old were often in the top 5% of weight. About 32% of babies now, according to the study, are in the top 5% of the weight category developed in 1960s. So this is a pretty impressive figure, and so people started having theories about why it is that babies were getting fatter. And the study's authors mentioned that they saw babies who were eating French fries, parents who were pouring soda into their babies' bottles, and the news reports read something like this. Some were concerned that parents were giving their children soda or juice in the bottle, and they also recommended that women breastfeed for as long as possible. <laughs> so you get these sort of large jumps in logic that if we would breastfeed, we would avoid putting soda in a bottle. And I think that people feel really awful when these kinds of comments are made because a lot of people use infant formula and they don't really understand the research on the connection between obesity and infant formula. In fact, that research is extremely poorly done, hardly ever controls for what a kid eats outside of the formula or the breast milk, which of course would be extremely important. And yet you get these conclusions that are not founded at all in the research. It's just sort of opinions by various people who are asked to comment by the media. But the media presents it in the same light that it might present the research results. And the research results were only in about the actual weight category. So that's a kind of jumping to conclusions that even without any statistics at all, you can see how silly the reasoning is, how morally motivated, perhaps. I think that people are very attached to their notions of what a parent should do. And that comes out quite strongly in a lot of media coverage of something as emotionally laden as overweight babies and and uh, breastfeeding versus infant formula kinds of conversations. So that's an example that's been on my mind recently. I'm trying to think of the worst example that I've ever seen. I, oh, I have one that you might enjoy. Again, this one is not exactly statistical, but you would need to actually read the study and understand a little of the statistics to see what they were doing in the study to see how ridiculous it is. This was a study that linked depression with chocolate consumption. <laughs> and they found that people who were depressed were eating a lot more chocolate. And so they opined that there may be, in fact, a causal connection here, that maybe by uh, eating chocolate we incline ourselves to depression, or perhaps by being depressed we, we turn to chocolate. And that chocolate could at least be an indicator, maybe help doctors understand when it is somebody is at risk of depression. So very interesting study until you actually look at what they did, and they never measured chocolate intake at all. <laughs> there was a question on a large questionnaire with a huge number of foods that people would eat, and they asked them how often that you eat chocolate. 
So you'd think that would measure chocolate consumption, except that most people, when they talk about chocolate, they might mean a Snickers bar, which has a little chocolate on the outside. Uh, they might mean you know, a Lindt 70% chocolate bar, which has a lot of chocolate inside it. So we don't actually know what that means. And it, it becomes so dirty, the data is so dirty to try to understand how much chocolate was actually consumed by those people who are more depressed that, in fact, we don't know anything. We might, we might say that they consumed a little bit more chocolate-flavored candies. Uh, or chocolate-covered, a little bit more uh, outside chocolate-covered candies or something. <laughs> That's the kind of thing that I think is rather silly and very cute and probably doesn't have big consequences, but is the kind of thing that people easily mistake for being statistical research. I want to uh, thank you for giving me your time today for doing this interview as well as humoring me on that last question. <laughs> And that is it for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you have any feedback or perhaps want to suggest a guest for the show, trust me, I'll do everything I can to get them on. Send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com. If you want to know more about Professor Golden or just more about any of the old episodes or perhaps you want to find out something about the irreverent mathematical talk show that is the sister podcast of Strongly Connected Components, combinations and permutations, head on over to acmescience.com. The intro music was from Hard and Firm. The song is Pie off their album Horses and Grasses. And the outro music is from SP12. You can find them over at opsound.org. This podcast is a Creative Commons attribution share-alike licensed piece of media. So, really, you can remix it. You can distribute it. You can pretty much do everything you want as long as you give us credit. If you want to find out more about Creative Commons, make sure to go over to their website. Give them some money. I do, from time to time. It's a good cause. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you stick around for the next episode of Strongly Connected Components.